Live. Well, you can learn about issues that affect us every day. Stay the world. Real people, real talk. Made to help people in our community in every way. For your It happens too often in Milwaukee. Lead poisoning. Maps from 2019 indicated that in one district in the city, one in six children under the age of six had elevated blood lead levels. Folks, this is serious. And what it can do to children, the impact that it can have, is frightening. Hello, I'm Beverly Taylor, and this is the 411 Live, Real People, Real Talk. I am joined by three ladies, and I'm very, very happy about this. Um, Holly Nannis, Public Health Nurse Supervisor for the Childhood Lead Poisoning Prevention Program for the Milwaukee <coughs> Health Department. That's a long title, but it's good to have you. Deanna Branch and Shaquita McElroy, both parent advocates with the Coalition of Lead Emergency, COLE for short, and both are mothers of children who have experienced lead poisoning. <coughs> welcome to you. I'm going to let you take some water because I can hear that in your throat. Uh, welcome to all of you. Uh, Holly, I want to start with you, though. Where are we in terms of, do we know, where are we in terms of numbers of children who have been poisoned by lead? Well, that's going to be a, a challenging number in that his. In the years um, in Milwaukee, specifically going back to data from 2018, 2019, we had approximately 25,000 children. Wow! That were screened. That were that were individual children that were screened and had lead poisoning. Uh, due to the pandemic, those numbers, the screening numbers, have gone way down. Mm -hmm. um, some of that has to do with an instrument that was used by a lot of providers to do what calls we call capillary screenings, which is the first round of screening for children. Because that it's just, instrument was recalled, wasn't right, it? Right, it was yeah. recalled. So that really took a major instrument out of circulation for almost a year. Um, and then uh, also, there's a, a because of the pandemic, a lot of these children. Um, we're just not going into their providers. And a lot of the healthcare providers were redeployed because of the pandemic. Yeah. So we are now in a phase of trying to catch up, um, in a catch-up phase to get children screened. So right now, um, just based on some data that came out from the state, um, that across Wisconsin, we are at the lowest screening rate for more than 10 years. Oh, my goodness. So we were getting, you know, screenings were going up. Mm -hmm. And then due to the pandemic um, and the recall of that machine, we're at all-time low right now, Yeah, the lowest we've been in 10 years. Yeah. So in terms of numbers, it's, I mean, it, there's no way to really calculate that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, um, Deanna, I know your son was hospitalized at two. How, and, and he had elevated lead levels. How did this come about? I mean... Where did you find out he had the elevated levels to get him into the hospital? Were there symptoms or, or what happened? He was hospitalized twice. The first time was when he was two. Um, it wasn't until a routine lead check at the wake office where I was alerted that, you know, he had a high lead level. And she, the wake office just told me to take a man to his pediatrician. 
I really didn't know uh, it would be as severe to the point where when he did get tested, uh, he was admitted into the hospital. What, two days after the test results came back, he was being admitted into the hospital. I had so many questions that I felt like weren't really being answered. It wasn't really until um, just becoming a member of call that I learned uh, the severity of really all of my child had to face, but there definitely were signs that were being passed off as just like, oh, he's just going through a terrible two face. It's what they call it, but it, it was definitely signs that um, I felt as a parent, I really knew something was also, it was just, it, it was just hard to, all of my worries were, it, it was just kind of came to a full head when um, he was diagnosed with lead poisoning. And after he was diagnosed with that, a lot of other things came about um, with his behavior as far as ADHD and ODD. And it just really is a lifelong process for any child who is lead poisoned. No matter how severe, there is no safe level of lead in the blood for a child. Yeah, yeah. And so when you were at the at the pediatrician, I think, were you telling me that you told the doctor something seems a little yeah, off? Yeah, this is before um, the, the WIC office appointment. And I was just, um, before I moved into the house that he was um, um, lead poisoned in, but um, he was having, it was, a. I don't think it was the lead level in my, my the first house when my eldest son were living in, it wasn't as bad. Um, but the pediatrician office in the neighborhood I took him to, she didn't really address my concerns when I was having concerns about his behavior. She just passed it off as terrible to a phase that every child is different because I didn't experience all the symptoms of my oldest son. It wasn't until I moved into a new um, house with my um, with my sons in uh, a new pediatrician. And after the uh, WIC office visit, that's when she really was more hands-on and addressed my concerns, got him tested right away and walk me through the process of him being admitted into the hospital for lead poisoning. And I just feel like she really was a big help. She's a part of Cole now. Mm -hmm. She's an awesome, awesome pediatrician that he still visits till this day. And she's going to be my new daughter's <laughs> pediatrician as well. She just, she's just awesome. It's just really great to, I just, I, through the, all, all this craziness, I created a lifelong friend with um with my pediatrician. It's, it's been great knowing her. Yeah, and I should mention that you are an expected mother, so congratulations <laughs> to you for that. Tell me the effects that you you were mentioning. It really is different for every child. Um, my oldest son, he wasn't as impacted. Um, he wasn't hospitalized for his lead poisoning. Um, but he does have problems in school that affects his um, learning process. It's hard for him to concentrate and focus. He has dyslexia, so he has barriers that it, it makes it hard for him to, you know, get up and just he writes things and and reads things in a way that he understands that other people might not understand. So mm -hmm. it's really a, a learning process for him to have the courage and confidence to really um, voice his concerns without feeling like he's being judged or ridiculed. Um, Aiden, just, um, he just has trouble just focusing and concentrating and sitting still. But when he does manage to sit still, he actually does very well with testing. Just um, doing homework and just listening and learning new information is really hard for him. So for every child, it really is different. And it's just like really two different sides of a coin trying to get them to concentrate in school and it's just it's just it's just so interesting to hear so many other stories of other children and parents um and what they have to go through 
And that's really right. the thing that amazes me most about LED is just that it really affects every child differently and there's different barriers that each child has to face. And they're all superheroes in their own way for overcoming daily obstacles. Right. Because it really is a lifelong phase. And that's what most people don't get that yeah. is really a lifelong thing. So, Shai, you have a, a child. Is just one that was affected by the lead? Yes. Okay. So, how? How? What was that story? Because I, I think you didn't really know it until me. He was five. Yes. So I knew that he had elevated lead levels between um, three point five to five point five micrograms per deciliter, but I didn't really know like what those it numbers was a went. Problem. Yeah. Or what those numbers meant until he was repeating K five. He had to repeat K five. Yes. Okay. So what happened then? Um, then I was just like Deanna at the WIC office, and that's where I found out that he had those elevated levels up to 9.9 at that point. Oh, wow. um, in the midst of finding that out, I also was having a IEP done with him because he was failing and way tremendously behind in K5. Now, we're talking kindergarten. Mm -hmm. So it's I've never heard of a child not passing K5. And that's just the stage of how far behind my son was. And so we pulled his medical records, and it was an ongoing thing because he was being tested at his doctor but and the WIC office, but no one was doing anything about the elevated lead levels. No one was giving me information about what's lead, what I need to look out for, how this is going to affect my son. So after pulling his medical records and doing his IEP and going through everything, that's when I really found out, like, oh, this is going to change our lives. Right, right. So how has it affected him? Um, in so many ways, like Deanna said, every child is affected differently. Um, and my son, he has cognitive and educational delays. Um, he has um, really bad anxiety attacks and um, really really struggling to really make his mark in in the ed education piece, but also outside of that, it's a fear for me as well yeah. because I seriously, just pulling up to a store, my son's 16 now, and so any 16-year-old should be able to walk into a store and make a minor purchase and walk out of the store. I fear that my son is going to shut down or have some kind of panic attack inside oh. of a store even going to buy a bag of chips. Oh, wow. So it's it's definitely a fact. Right, right. And Holly, the, the thing from these two ladies is it affects children differently. And, you know, lead poisoning, there are different levels of it, right. that kind of thing. So what happens when uh, they were talking about testing. And so it's, it's very, very important that when a child gets tested and they get the result and the levels are elevated, that something is done, mm -hmm. not just, oh, yeah, you're, you know, elevated levels, right? Right. So uh, I'm just wondering, everybody that's involved in that, do they get it? Do they understand how important this is? To follow up? Well, I think over the years, the um, I'm not sure if things were as connected as they should have been. Mm -hmm. um, I can speak for my time back at the health department, which has been um, a little over three years now. Um, but when we were, when I came back and we were looking at the program and what needed to be done, um, there's, there's a couple of things as far as all children are, can be exposed to lead hazards at any age but all children can be exposed to lead hazards. The 
blood lead level in a child is known through a, usually a capillary screen. Mm -hmm. And then based on that level, then we would do a venous draw. And that's what we call confirmatory. And that data all goes into the, a state database that notifies all the local health departments around uh, any child in their jurisdiction that has an elevated blood lead level um, or has been exposed. So in, in the city of Milwaukee, we would, um, what would historically what would um, uh, require a follow-up with a public health nurse would be levels of two 15 micrograms per deciliter venous, 90 days apart, or one 20 and above for to trigger a nurse being assigned to that child mm -hmm. and an inspector being assigned to the property that would go in and investigate the house as to where the lead hazards are. So that is put out by state statute um, CDC makes recommendations, and then the states, each state, will determine what, what level there will be a reaction to. So um, at the time where Deanna and Shai's, um, uh, the time that their child, at the, at the lower levels, the health department at that time did, did not have a response for the lower levels. We've been working to lower our intervention levels. Mm -hmm. So we did voluntarily go down to just 115 um, because why wait 90 days? Yeah. Okay. So we went to, down to uh, 115 that will initiate a nurse case manager being assigned and the property to be in investigated. Any, which would be a primary address or any place else that child spends time. So we may have one child, but we may need to investigate three properties because they visit grandma or the babysitter. So on average, every child generates about two to three addresses. But we want to make sure that we're, we're covering all of where the child spends time. Um, we are currently piloting and with developing our community partners that we can lower that threshold down to 10 so at a 10, we would have the nurse case manager go out, um, and we can t I can talk through what the nurses do when they when they work with families and with the providers. But we're piloting right now, going down to 10, that would get a nurse case management manager assigned, and then also work with our community partners in order to have those properties um, investigated for lead hazards. For the lower levels, the 3.5, which is the new reference level from CDC, to 9.9. .9, we are working through with our partners and with Cole around really getting the messaging out around um, one, what needs to happen, what, what things can be done on a daily basis within a home also that, can, uh, that you can control some of the lead hazards okay. that can be at home. Great. I'm going to stop you there. We're going to take a quick break and we're going to come back and talk a little bit more on what we're talking about now, but also kind of the parental things that can be done. Stay with us. We'll be right back. When I was growing up, my mom was extremely tidy. We were trained to put things back where we got them from. One day, when I walked into my mom's house, I felt like I walked to someone else's house. There was stuff everywhere. And just growing up, the way I grew up, and to see this transition was very alarming. 
When Sean talked to me, it was a wake-up call, and that's when I went to the doctor. Welcome back to the 411 Live. Uh, we are talking to two mothers who have children who have experienced lead poisoning. And we have a nurse supervisor from the health department. And we were kind of going through some of the steps that you guys take. You've got this child, the child is tested, the screening, you know, you've got case I guess, uh, case management mm -hmm. that they go through. So a nurse has this case. Where does she go from there? Does she do, do additional screening or, you know, is she helping the family cope with this or what's happening? Okay. So once every child um, that has a blood blood level screening done, whether it's capillary venous, we, will, we get notified through a database from the state. So when we get those levels, we will know exactly who the child is, their date of birth, what who drew their blood blood level, what the level was, um, and based on what level it's at, uh, a nurse will be assigned uh, as a case manager and immediately reach out to that family um, to connect with the family or the guardian, but then also to connect with the primary care provider. So if a child comes through with a very elevated, let's say for a 40 or 45 and above, where they may have to be hospitalized, that is done immediately. Uh, so that we work directly with uh, the the primary care provider, but also now we've developed a lead care uh, management team in children's that the handoff from finding out the elevated lead, getting them into the hospital, and getting them care managed. We that nurse case manager works directly with the staff in the in the hospital, but also to also work with families to let them know what's happening. Um, we have a certain routine of follow-up time, so uh, we may send letters out or we may do a phone call um, to say this is what the level is and this is what you need to do next. Um, working, we're working a lot with providers to make sure that they build that into their child, their, their electronic health records, and to start to consider lead poisoning as a chronic condition, not just for toddlers, because lead is toxic once it is in the body. So yeah. that's that's the significance. Um, so when the nurses go into the home, they will do a they do education on what they can, uh, how to be able to uh, wet mop the floors, uh, where the lead hazards are usually found. Um, usually, it's doorways and windows where there's chipping paint. But also, we do the nurses go in and they do it, what's called a developmental screen. So they will go in and there's one for physical. Um, and then one's for social-emotional. So lead is toxic, and it can affect the brain. It can affect the kidneys, the heart. And once that there is uh, damage, it is really difficult to undo that damage because it, it, it is a lifelong experience. So if when the nurses have the, the developmental screen done um, and there are findings, we will refer them into community organizations and make sure they get there. So, for example, there's a pen field, which will be um, working with aggression and anger behaviors. There's also birth to three that will work with developmental and speech. There's also head starts, kids into head starts that will help bridge some of these um, educational gaps. So we really have this continuity um, and making sure that if we refer them in, that they actually do get in. So we work very closely with the family 
um, as they go through this unfortunate journey of their child being lead poisoned. And then we follow them um, until the property's inspected, the lead hazards are removed, and then we wait and work with the families and have continued screenings to make sure those blood lead levels come down before we would close that case. So we work for families for sometimes several years. Okay, Shai, I know, and and you too, Deanna, I know that you guys are advocates for your children. I mean, you are on top of it. And I think you went back to school, Shai. Yes. So that you could better teach your child. Yes. That's huge. Mm -hmm. Every child has their own learning pattern or um, their own way of learning. Uh And through going to school, I realized that I had to meet my son where he was at Mm -hmm. and guide him in that way. So, Yeah, that is great. And I'm sure that in school, because of those those attention deficits or, you know, it's hard to pay attention, Mm -hmm. that affects your child, right? Oh, definitely. Definitely. That's why my course on sensories was so important. And I was just like, honed in and they had my full attention because that's what he needed to get him through a lot of stuff, like his attention span and focus wise, those sensory objects, like even a fidget spinner, you know, that can help a child from having a whole breakdown. Wow. Wow. Are you guys kind of surprised, Deanna and Shy? are you surprised by, um, you know, your whole experience now you're in the community, you're, you're advocates, you're parental advocates, you're teaching other people how to deal with this. Are you surprised by your new roles now? I would say no. If anything, I'm more so, um, I think more so like ready and ready to hit the front lines mm-hmm. with it because I... God forbid that another child has to go through what my son went through Mm -hmm. or another family don't know or another family has the all the signs right there in front of their face. They just haven't had anyone talk to them. So I am more than willing to talk to any family, be on the front lines, knock on doors, um, canvas blocks, all that good stuff. (laughs) Right. The other thing that's, um, you know, makes this so... I don't know, uh, so important to get the word out. You, there is a concentration in Milwaukee where lead is real prominent, and that's the north side of Milwaukee. So if somebody um, goes and rents a property there, say they have limited funds, you know, just so much, so they're looking for a rental property that you know, satisfies that. They get in there and then they discover there's lead. So they move a couple of blocks down the street because they still have just so much money Mm -hmm. and they move in that place and it has lead too. So that's another problem. We talk about redlining, historical segregation and all these things. And it bothers me. I agree with Shy. I'm not surprised uh, what I do now. It kind of seems like fate because sharing my story, just the way I felt advocating for my son, 
I was it was kind of embarrassing and a shame for me to talk about it because I felt like it was really something that you know I caused and I made this happen. But sharing my story and opening up to my community and the positive response and so many similar stories, countless stories from other parents, and it made me just think like, wow, this is not just a me problem. This is a community problem, and why isn't anything being done? So I just feel that feel like it was it was destined to be because I just wish that I had. So known a supportive group like Cole and known someone like me to advocate with me. And I just felt so alone going through um, my journey with Aiden. And I don't want the parents and children to feel like how me and Aiden felt. So it feels really good to be in a position where I feel like um, I'm not alone and I have support and other parents have help. Right. That's good. And I should mention that, you know, you are um, what almost friends with the vice president, Kamala Harris, who um, you've talked to about the whole thing of lead poisoning, and you were a guest for the State of the Union address just recently. So that is good. So you you have a national platform, and that, of course, helps as well. Holly, something you had mentioned earlier, that it is so important to collaborate with the community, mm-hmm. and you mentioned that this good partnership with Cole is making a difference too, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I think for a lot of the, um, a lot of communities whose voices have not been listened to before, um, sort of feel hopeless. And if we need, if we're going to make some significant differences in neighborhoods that unfortunately have historically had lead poisoned children disproportionately, um, that is definitely um, social injustice, and we need to change that. Right. But by having Families, one, feel supported by other families that have gone through this experience, but also how can we, um, on a day-to-day basis, um, you sometimes you might not know if you have chipping paint, if it's leaded paint or not. So there are things that can be done on a daily basis. Just, um, you know, the best things is making sure if there's cracks in the walls, you can put duct tape over it because and or the windows, high friction areas. So in the summertime, unfortunately, we we have more children that get exposed to lead during the summertime because they're outside playing in the dirt where we've had decades of leaded gas uh, build up in the soil, but also high friction. So windows, doors, porches, those are some of the key areas where it's high friction. You can repaint it, but it's, you know, opening opening, closing those windows then takes... Uh, rubs down the paint, then it gets down to the lead-based dust. So when the primary thing with abatement is we replace all the windows, we replace the doors, the lead risk assessors go in and they identify the surfaces that are leaded, and then there's a scope of work, and then the, that process moves forward. And the property owners must do this. Okay, this is not an option for them. Yeah, they should want to. I mean, when you think about it, Children are our future. Right. They're precious commodities. Mm-hmm. So this really has to be done. You gave some great tips there, and I just wonder, what else can parents do? I know you had talked about a safety kit, and you both had talked about foods that absorb lead, and I'd never heard that before. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. What Nutrition are is one of the biggest, biggest, biggest things um, that's attached to this because you have a lot of families who don't have the means to, well, I'm going to say it like this. You have children who the only meal that they get is at school. Mm. And those are the children that you're going to find the highest lead levels in. Oh, wow. 
So nutrition is everything connected to this. When you're talking about getting a lead safe kit, nutrition is part of that. So to have a child that is eating those uh, green leafy vegetables and drinking their iron, I mean, their uh, calcium and getting that proper amount of iron in, that is critical to combating lead in children. Oh, wow. And a lot of children, like the sad truth is, don't get those meals. So, I mean, the lead safe kit, though it does give you duct tape to put on a windowsill and, you know, make sure you got the uh, wipes to wipe off surfaces and stuff. If your child is not eating properly, they're still going to get exposed to lead. So do you think that 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 is the biggest tip that you could give parents to make sure that that nutrition? The biggest tip that I can give to parents is it's not impossible. It's not impossible. That's why we work so hard to have our food drives, to make sure that food is getting out to the communities. Every three months we have those food drives and um, making sure that children are, well, families are um, getting their full benefits. SNAP program um, with a wig and knowing where to go get those foods from. There's not enough publicity on even a commercial to say, hey, your child is trying to combat lead, need nutrition. This is where, this is what they can eat. This is where you can go. So along with that important piece is giving families recipes. Mm. Speaking of recipes, how's that cookbook coming, uh, Deanna? It's really exhausting <laughs> and fun. Uh, working with my children on creating a children's cookbook for children to for healthy recipes to absorb the lead that kids actually want to eat. It's been fun and exhausting working with my kids. It's just, they're like night and day. So it's been fun and exhausting. But just um, I like to add on like just teaching daily habits, keeping parents informed, teaching your kids um, habits of just taking off their shoes when they enter the house so they don't bring in that lead soil, um, making sure they wash their hands and just just keep them aware when you create daily routines and rituals with kids, they just come more accustomed to uh to being lead safe without even knowing it. And I also just want to mention um Aiden the Lead Free Superhero book. Illustrated completely by my son Aiden. It tells a little bit about his story and there's a little something in the back um of the book for parents uh to help with what to do and what steps to take when their child is exposed to lead. So it's a little bit of an information packet for children and parents to help them become more proactive in the fight against lead and just to keep kids informed about what lead is and how to defeat the lead monsters in the water, paint, soil. That very good. Can people contact Cole to get that? Uh, it's available on uh, Amazon and other retail outlets. But and what is the- it called? Aiden the Lead Free Superhero. Aiden the Lead Free Superhero. I definitely will recommend the Cole uh, website for parents to keep them informed, up to date, if they want to become more involved in Cole. Um, and that website is? Um, CoalitionOnLeadEmergency.org. And all tips and um, ways to get a lead safe kit and so on and so forth is on there is as well. Is on there. Okay. Well, ladies, we've run out of time. <laughs> it went fast. You gave so much information. Thank you, ladies, for sharing your stories and your children with us today. And thank you, Holly, for all the great information that you've given us from the health department. So a lot needs to be done, but this is not a a problem that can't be solved. You know, if everybody's working together, 
Yeah, we got to do it. Can't stop because our children are, you know, their health is at stake. So thank you all. My guest, Holly Nannis, public health nurse supervisor with the for the childhood led poisoning prevention program for the Milwaukee Health Department. Deanna Branch and Shaquita McElroy, both parent advocates for a coalition of lead emergency or coal, as we call it. And both are mothers of children who have experienced lead poisoning. And again, thank you for sharing their stories. No problem. And thank you for joining us for another edition of the 411 Live. We are a nonprofit organization, so if you're so inclined to help us out, go to our website, the411live.org. Until next time, I'm Beverly Taylor. This is the 411 Live. Real people, real talk. If you would like to check out past episodes, there are many ways. Go to your favorite Follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Like and watch us on Facebook. Watch and subscribe to our YouTube channel. And if you have suggestions for future episodes, go to our website, the411live.org.